Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and just to start, I'm going to apologise because I've been a little ill over the last week or so, so um, this episode will be a bit shorter, and uh, hopefully my voice is fine now, but yeah, but I decided to um, like release a short episode rather than make you wait another week. This episode, I'm going to be telling you about one of what I consider one of the worst atrocities against a s- individual um, that I've heard, at least. I probably came across this when I was like 17 or so, and this one has really stuck with me. It's, and I will warn you that it, this episode will be quite graphic. So basically, if you're not sure about graphic descriptions um, of a lot, this might be uh, this might be a decent episode to skip, but if not, I'm gonna cut to music and we'll be right back with the story of Junko Furuta. And we're back. So, if you're still here. Welcome, you're in for a ride. So, I'm going to be telling you about Junko Furuta, uh, who was a 17-year-old high school student in Japan, who went through an ordeal unlike many I've heard of. Um, this one really churns my guts. Yeah, So, it's not going to be a fun episode, but it's one that I think should be told. It happened, and it was a real thing. So... I'm going to tell you about one of the biggest acts of cruelty I've heard of in recent memory. So, um, a lot of these details were in Japanese, so I'm liter- I'm working off what was tra- what was already translated. But um, I'm going to try my best, and hopefully, I can give this some justice. So yeah, um, it was actually surprisingly difficult to find uh, details of Junko herself prior to the crime. But yeah, I'm going to give a bit of background for the main perpetrators first, before I get into the crime, just so I can get through the background at least, and then we'll actually go straight into the bulk of the story. So yeah, let's get into it, and hopefully I can do it some justice. So yes, these perpetrators, there were, there were four main ones that were prosecuted in the end. Uh, a few articles, like most of the main articles have them labelled as A through D, uh, so I've try to put so hopefully I get names right and I haven't mixed it up anywhere but we'll see how it goes. I think I've done it pretty alright though. So the leader of the four was called Hiroshi Miyano and was born in April nineteen seventy. Um both his parents were pretty well off. Yeah, and he was their first son. But despite this the family was kind of dysfunctional because of Argument, arguing and stuff between parents, and Hiroshi started uh, showing an aggressive nature during his primary school years, uh, with stealing, bullying, and vandalism. He became pretty violent uh, in the family, and his father actually went to the school for advice. In his middle school years, he uh, didn't cause too much trouble, uh, becoming good in judo, was at, and became famous for being good at it during high school. He found the practice quite hard, uh, being bullied by his seniors during it. 
and actually leaving the club about half a year later. Another half a year after this, he left school and started work as a tiler and also joined a motorcycle gang. He got put under probation shortly after, having committed several uh, criminal offences, including theft, breaking, entering, and causing bodily injury. And after this, he left gang and appeared to have been settled, uh, continuing to work as a tiler and apparently being quite a decent employee. Then he started living with his um, girlfriend, who was another one of the perpetrator's elder sister, being Watanabe Yasuhi. Uh, he started to save money, dreaming of marrying her, and in 1988, he obtained a driving license and was given a brand new car by his father in July. Though, after August, he became pretty dissatisfied because of his low pay and, and stopped showing up for work, becoming connected to a Yakuza member through one of his former classmates. He began selling fake brand goods and also began inhaling paint thinners. Meanwhile, the second perpetrator was called Joe Kamisaku uh, and was born in May 1971. His parents were separated when he was young. His parents separated when he was young and he spent most of his life with his mother and sister. He was pretty good at sports now. He didn't show any signs of being a troublemaker until he fractured his right foot uh, while skiing in January 1986 becoming unable to carry on with his sports. Uh, he started slacking with his studies and was, uh, and ended up getting expelled from high school in, in November 1987 and began working as an, as an electrician's apprentice while enrolling at night school. Though yeah, he soon lost interest after this and became absent from classes and didn't really do much until July 1988 where he was put on probation for driving a motorcycle without a license third of the main perpetrators was called Minato Nobuharu and was born in December 1972. Both his parents um, were in the medical field, with his father working as a pharmacist and his mother a nurse at the same surgery. He had an elder brother who was born in January 1972 and while at primary school he became pretty known for being a troublemaker uh, using threatening behaviour and shoplifting. This graduated further in middle school, with increasing verbal and physical violence, uh, while also rebelling against his father. After starting high school, his attendance dropped. He wouldn't come home at night, started mixing with bad company, became violent at home, and actually ended up leaving school in September. And during the summer of that year, he and his elder brother ended up having their rooms become a hangout for gang members. Especially since his parents were not often at home due to their jobs. He was also placed in probation um, after driving a motorcycle without a license later on. And most things say that basically faced with their own son's violence, the parents uh, were pretty helpless. Now the fourth of the perpetrators, Watanabe Yasushi, was born in December 1971. Yeah, His parents split up when, when he was four and and divorced two years later before his father was killed in a traffic accident soon afterwards. He ended up being raised by his mother and elder sister, and though he joined a night school in April 1986, he stopped showing up about a week later and left school in September. Um, by October 1986, he was, he was another one placed under probation for domestic violence. Yeah, and by March 1988, he was on file for a few minor criminal offences. He tried a few jobs but didn't last very long with any of them and um, all four of these uh, perpetrators went to the same middle school with Hiroshi as the oldest, Kamusaki and Watanabe as 
being in the grade below, and Minato as the grade below that. Minato's house had two ha- had two rooms upstairs, which were occupied by himself and his brother. And um, this became a hangout for youths. And in October 1988, Minato's brother had his motorcycle stolen, and Hiroshi started to come to Minato's house to help uh, while helping to find his motorbike. Uh, and eventually a small gang of violent teens informed. Hiroshi was the leader and was pretty... and was said to be feared by the others. And basically under his leadership, the gang basically started behaving like Yakuza. Joey Kamasaki was second in command and controlled the others while Hiroshi was absent. But at least that's, that's some background of the group, at least. So, um... Yes, let's get into the crime. So, so Junka Fruta was abducted three days after her 17th birthday on November 25, 1988 by Hiroshi Miyano and Nobuharu Minato. Both of these teens were wandering around Junko's hometown of Misato, hoping to rob and rape women. They spotted Junko cycling home after finishing her part-time job around 8.30 in the evening. Under Hiroshi's orders, Minato kicked Junko off her bike and then immediately fled the scene. Hiroshi then acted as an innocent bystander trying to help and rushed up to her and off- offering to walk her home, saying that he knew yeah, from before and calling him a psychopath, saying that she might still be in danger. After gaining her trust, Hiroshi led her to a nearby warehouse and told her that he was part of the Yakuza. After threatening to kill her, he raped her, once in the warehouse, and once again in a nearby hotel. From the hotel, uh, Hiroshi called Joe Kamisaku, who was then known as Joe Ogura, Nobuharu Minato, and Yasushi Watanabe, bragging to them about the rape. The group had a history of gang rape, and had recently kidnapped and raped another girl, though she was released afterwards. Uh, reportedly, Joe asked Hiroshi to keep her so that it could all have a turn. And then, around 3am, Hiroshi took Junko to a nearby park, where Nobuharu, Joe, and Yasushi Minato were were waiting for her. They told her that they knew where she lived, uh, because of a notebook in her backpack, and that the Yakuza would kill her family if she tried to escape. They then took her to a house in the in the ASA district of Adachi, where Minato and his family lived, like I said, repeatedly used as a gang hide as a gang hangout, and she was gang raped. On on November twenty seven, Junko's parents contacted the police about their daughter's disappearance. Yeah, and in response, the kidnappers coerced Junko into calling her mother, uh, forcing her to say that she'd run away, but was safe and staying with a friend. Yeah, and also to stop the police investigation into her disappearance. When Minato's parents were around, Junko was forced to act as the girlfriend of one of the kidnappers. Uh, though they later dropped this when it became clear that the Minato family wouldn't report them to the police. The Minatos later said that they didn't intervene because they were afraid of retaliation from Hiroshi Miyano, uh, who was known to have ties to the Yakuza, and also because of their son becoming increasingly violent towards them. Minato's brother was also aware of the situation, but did nothing to prevent it. It's said that over 100 people were aware of the imprisonment. Over the next 40 days, 
she was subjected to untold cruelties. And I'm going to go through these, but once again, a warning that these are really graphic, so just be careful if you're listening to this. Make sure you're ready, like, make sure you're ready for some graphic uh, descriptions. Um, but I think it, but I feel like it, it really ham- it really pulls in just how vicious this was. And for a while I thought, I, for a while I wasn't sure whether to, whether to put this in or not, but I want to put in as much as I can, so. Right, so. Over the next 40 days, um, she was, she was subjected to rapes, beatings, and tortures. Um, and according to trial statements, this included being raped over 400 times with the kidnappers often inviting and encouraging friends to humiliate her and rape her. They starved her, beat her several times with golf clubs, bamboo sticks, and iron rods, hanged her from the ceiling and used her as a punching bag, dropped barbells on her stomach several times, forced her to eat live cockroaches and drink her own urine, forced her to masturbate in front of them, inserted foreign objects such as iron bars, scissors, and skewers into her vagina and anus, making her unable to defecate and urinate properly, shoved a still-lit light bulb into her vagina, inserted fireworks into her anus, vagina, mouth, and ears before lighting them, burnt her vagina with cigarettes and lighters, burnt her eyelids with hot wax and lighters, tore off her left nipple with pliers, and pierced her breasts with sewing needles. Two of the kidnappers' friends, Tetsuo Nakamura and Koichi Ihara, were charged with rape after the DNA was found on and in the victim's body. Koichi was bullied into the rape, leaving the Minato household shortly after and telling his brother about the incident. His brother told his brother told their parents, who contacted the police. Two police officers were sent to the house, but they were informed that there was no girl inside, and declined an invitation to come into the house and look around, taking the invitation as sufficient proof. If they found her at this point, um, Junko would have only been kept there for 16 days and there was and there would have been a chance of her to recover um needless to say after this both both officers um had a lot of backlash from the community and were fired for not uh, following procedure at the beginning of december junko attempted to call the police though hiroshi discovered her before she could say anything and when the police went back he informed them it was a mistake and punished her by dousing her legs and feet in lighter fluid uh, before setting them on fire. They also shoved a large bottle into her anus, causing severe bleeding, uh, reportedly causing her to go into convulsions. During the trial, they said that they thought she was faking the seizure and set her on fire again. She, She survived these injuries and continued to be tortured for still longer. And she is reported to have asked her kidnappers multiple times to just kill her and get it over with. 
Instead of this, they forced her to sleep outside on the balcony during winter and also locked her in a freezer. Later in court, one of the kidnappers um, said that her hands and legs were so badly damaged that it took her over an hour to get down the stairs to use the washroom. And due to the severe genital damage that she'd undertaken, she lost bladder and bowel control and was beaten for sodium carpets. She was also beaten for becoming unable to drink water or consume any food, vomiting any time she tried. These attacks were so vicious that they caused Junko's appearance to become altered and formed, um, with her face becoming so swollen that it was difficult to make out her features. She was also severely crippled and began giving off a rotting smell which caused the boys to lose sexual interest in her. While Junko was still in captivity, uh, the group kidnapped and gang-raped a 19-year-old woman who was also on her way home from work. Yeah, she would also end up spending New Year's Day and Christmas in confinement. On the on her 40th day of confinement, either the boys came home after losing a lot of money on Mahjong, or they challenged Junko to a game of Mahjong, which she is said to have won. And out of frustration, the boys beat her with an iron barbell, kicked and punched her, and placed two candles on her eyelids, uh, burning them with hot wax. They then made her stand and struck her feet with a swinging stick. At this point, she fell onto a stereo and collapsed into convulsions. She was bleeding heavily and her burns were infected. The four covered her hands in plastic bags and taped her wrists. They continued to beat her and dropped an iron exercise ball onto her stomach several times before pouring lighter fluid onto her thighs, arms, face and stomach before and setting her on fire once again. She apparently made attempts to put out the fire but became but eventually but then became unresponsive. This attack reportedly lasted two hours. She died either shortly after or during the torture itself. On January the fourth, nineteen eighty nine, less than twenty four hours after she died, Minato's brother called him to tell him that Chunko was dead. They wrapped her body in blankets and shoved it into a travel bag before putting it into a 55-gallon drum and filling it with wet concrete. Around 8pm, they loaded the drum onto a cement truck and disposed of it in Koto, Tokyo. On January 23rd, 1989, Hiroshi and Joe were arrested for the gang rape of the 19-year-old woman that they had kidnapped in December. And on March 29, two officers came to interrogate them after finding women's underwear at their, at their addresses, thinking that they had committed theft as well. During the interrogation, one of the officers made a offhand comment, uh, basically, yeah, along the lines of, it's not okay to kill people, you know, which caused Hiroshi to think that the officers knew about Junko's murder and that Joe had confessed to the crime. Hiroshi then told the police where to find Junko's body. Conf- at, at, at first, the police were surprised by the confession because they were been talking about a the murder of another woman and her seven-year-old son that occurred nine days before Junko's abduction, uh, which remains unsolved to this day. The next day, police found the drum containing Junko's body, and she was identified via her fingerprints. On the 1st of April, 1989, Joe Ogura was arrested for another sexual assault and shortly after re-arrested for murder. 
The arrest of the other perpetrators shortly followed. Despite the level of this crime, the, kidnapp- the kidnappers had their identities sealed by the court since they were all considered juveniles. The journalists of the Shukan Bunshin magazine short, um, discovered their identities and published them, stating that given the severity of the crime, the accused did not deserve to have their right to anonymity upheld. All four boys pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death rather than murder. In July 1990, a lower court sentenced Hiroshi Miyano to 17 years in prison. He appealed the sentence, but the Tokyo High Court judge Ryuji Yanisei sentenced it, responded by sentencing him to an additional three years in prison, resulting in a 20-year total sentence, which is, which is the second highest after life imprisonment. He was 18 at the time of the murder, and after the crime came out, Hiroshi's mother was reported to have sent Junko's parents 50 million yen, or about 425,000 US dollars, after selling their family home. Nobuharu Minato um, originally received a four to six year sentence before being resentenced to five to nine years by Ryuji Yanase after he tried to appeal it, being 16 at the time of the murder. His parents and brother were not charged, though Junko's parents uh, won a civil suit against the parents of Nobuharu Minato. Yasushi Watanabe was originally sentenced to three to four years in prison and got a upgraded sentence of five to seven years. He was 17 at the time of the murder. Joe Ogura, now Joe Kamisaku, served eight years in juvenile prison uh, before being released. He was 17 at the time of the murder. If they were a couple years older, it's likely that Hiroshi would have received capital punishment while the others are likely to receive life sentences. However, at this point in time, all of the perpetrators are free men, with Hiroshi being re-arrested for fraud in January 2013 and being released without charge due to insufficient evidence. Nobuhara moved in with his mother and has not worked since. Yasushi Watanabe uh, married a Romanian woman after his release. After Joe Ogura, or now Joe Kamisaku's release, he is said to have boasted about his role in the kidnapping, and in July 2004, he was arrested for assaulting Takatoshi Isono, who was an acquaintance he thought his girlfriend was involved with. Joe tracked Takatoshi down, beat him, and shoved him into his trunk. He drove him from Adachi to his mother's bar in Misato, where he beat him for four hours. Apparently during that time, Joe repeatedly threatened to kill him, saying that he'd killed before and he knew how to get away with it. He was sentenced to seven years in prison for the assault, and has since once again been released. Apparently, Joe's mother vandalised Junko's grave, saying that she'd ruined her son's life. Joe's father um, was saving for Junko's family, but it's said that Joe has run through these savings uh, by buying and consuming a lot of luxury goods. The sentences were largely regarded as being far too light for the crimes committed due to the special provisions uh, with them being minors. And I would easily agree. It's a it's a really hard one to learn about and really hard to talk about it. Like it's a crime that I would call evil, and the term barbaric is generous for it. But yes, during the sentencing, upon hearing the details of Junko's ordeal, a spectator in the gallery fainted, and Junko's mother ended up requiring intensive psychiatric treatment. Her funeral was held on April the second, nineteen eighty nine at which 
her employer at a part-time job um, presented her parents with the uniform that she would have had to wear as a full-time employee, which was then placed in her coffin. And um, one of her friend's memorial addresses read, Jun Chan, welcome back. I have never dreamed that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we all made for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard that the headmaster has presented you with a graduation certificate. So we graduated together, all of us. Jun Chan, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. And we're back. So, if you're still here, thank you for staying. I know that was not easy to listen to. Um, it certainly wasn't easy to read about and talk about. But yeah. So, once again, sorry for the, the short episode. But um, I think it was an intense one. So, I think a short episode is probably needed for this one. A few quick shout-outs to Nox Arcana as usual for providing our intermission music. Uh, three podcasts I've been listening to recently. Shout out to Murderish Podcast, More Podcast, and one that came out quite recently, I Got the Hell Out. Yeah, so you can catch me on social media, at on Twitter, at The Bloody Rocks, on Facebook, at um, Blood on Rocks. Like if you search Blood on Rocks, it should come up. We have a email address, um, which is botrpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave an iTunes re- review or tell your friends. It really helps me out. And thank you for everyone that has already done that or has spoken to me on uh, Twitter or whatever. I really appreciate any comments and stuff because it, it helps. But yeah, anyway, I'm going to sign off here. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>